0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Today's topic is Mary and Martha. And which one are you? Mary or Martha? Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha was busy with preparations. Martha was busy cleaning the kitchen and getting things together and tidying up the house and attending to needs. And Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. We're going to use this opportunity to discuss the issue of Mary and Martha to discuss a broader and a larger issue that's very pertinent in the church today and in our society today, and that's the issue of women in the church. Uh, and women in Christianity, and how do we understand this? And I'm going to make an argument uh, in the message later on that, uh, that we need to look at this issue from the, ide- from the context of the kingdom. What we often do is we discuss this verse, and then you discuss that verse, and I say this verse means this, and you say that verse means that. And that's how we argue and banter back and forth in the church. But often what we end up doing, of course, is, is someone at some point in time is taking the verse out of its context and looking at the larger scope of the biblical story. And I want us to look at the larger scope of the biblical story. What is going on in the kingdom and in the new creation, and what does that mean for us? Now, let let this be said, and that is this. Sometimes we're going to disagree on things. Sometimes we're just not going to see eye to eye on everything, and I'm going to say this about women in the church, and you're going to think, no, 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 that's not correct. And the answer is, you know what, fine, at the end of the day, let's move forward as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but I believe strongly on this issue and I believe that the role of women in the new covenant and in the new creation is a level of equality with male and female that we're all one in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to argue from that, and if we don't agree at the end of the day, you can be wrong, and I'll be right, and we'll all be fine and dandy. And, oh, <laughs> did I say that, Charles? I didn't, I didn't mean to. Sorry. But, um, uh, but we'll move forward uh, with that as well. But let's keep an open mind uh, and, and listen and think critically on, on this issue, because I think it has important implications for the church's witness in the world today. And I think that's actually the whole point, isn't it? My name is Rob Darpal, I'm the pastor here at Northminster. I would like to make three points underneath that, and that's this. Number one, the kingdom of God is the restoration redemption or reconciliation of all creation. The kingdom of God is the restoration, redemption or reconciliation of all creation. Uh, The point is this, is that the Bible is a story from Genesis to Revelation and it's going somewhere. It started in a garden. And in that garden, humanity dwelt in God's presence. Chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Genesis. That's where the story starts. In a garden with humanity in God's presence. But then chapter 3. Humanity sinned and, and is kicked out of God's presence. And from there forward, the story of the scriptures is, how is God's presence going to be restored to humanity? Or better said, how is humanity going to be restored to God's presence? How is the garden going to be restored? And if we go to the end of the story, Revelation 21 and 22, what, what, what we find is, Revelation 21 and 22 describes the final state in terms of the restoration of Eden. The final state is is, uh, described in terms of the restoration of Eden. The the New Jerusalem has the River of Life and the Tree of Life, and if you look carefully, Revelation 21 and 22, it has Genesis language in it, Eden language in it. So there's the scope of the Biblical story. It starts in Eden with humanity in God's presence. It ends in a glorified, resurrected, restored, redeemed Eden with humanity in God's presence. And in the middle there, we're we're on that trajectory towards that. In Eden, let's add one more, th- one more point. Male and female were equals. In Eden, male and females were equals. And I'm probably preaching to the choir on this, but let's look at a couple of references. Genesis one twenty-six and twenty-seven. God said, "Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground." So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Without question, Genesis 1 tells us that man that mankind, male and female are both equally made in God's image. Period. Let's make mankind, humanity, in our image. And he does so, male and female. Now, some people would like to point out Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Where it says, The Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Genesis 2 seems to give uh, more details. It, it seems to be a second creation account, but it's not. It's more details as to what happened on the sixth day. And on the sixth day, God made Adam. And then later on, he says, You know what? He, it's not good for him to be alone. Interestingly, by the way, this is the first not good in the creation account. It's not good for him to be alone. Let's make a helper suitable for him. And people say, see, the word helper suggests someone inferior, someone that's going to come alongside, you know, help Adam out, you know, cook his meals, do his laundry, right? Sorry about that, but just, just the way the thinking goes. The problem with that argument is simply, and that is this, the word helper does not imply inferiority. The word helper, in fact, was used most frequently for Yahweh, i.e. God, and his relationship to Israel. God is Israel's helper because he's stronger. Exodus 18.4, Deuteronomy 33.7, 26 and 29, Psalm 33.20, and I can go on. The word helper in the, biblical, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for helper, is actually used more often for Yahweh, which is God, his, his most sacred name. It's actually used more often for God than anybody else. So if the argument is the word helper supplies inferiority, you're in big trouble because the word helper is more often used for God and his role of helping Israel and God is the stronger one in his role of helping Israel. Now I don't think we should go there and say, okay, therefore God made Eve and she was stronger than Adam. That's not the point. The point is the argument simply doesn't work the other way around. Helper implies someone uh, in this context is someone of equality. Now, I argue in the beginning, if the kingdom of God is the restoration, redemption, restoration uh, and reconciliation of creation, um, if that's what it is, and if the original creation, humanity was equal, mankind, uh, male and female, they were equal, then it seems to be fit that in the new Jerusalem or in the new creation at the end of the book, male and female will also be equal. There's just no reason to to suggest otherwise. If God's restoring Eden and bringing a a glorified restoration, creation, and they were equal in creation, then they're going to be equal in the new creation. And here's where I think we get a little bit more complex, and that's this. The new creation's already begun, folks. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And I could show you verse after verse after verse to support this idea. And if you want to stay for our Sunday morning class this morning at 11.15, we can continue this discussion in more detail if you'd like. But throughout the New Testament, the language of new creation, uh, Jesus breathed on his disciples and they became a new creation. They became a living being. The same language used to describe the creation of Adam. The, the, The receiving of the Spirit of God for the church today in our lives is the beginning of the new creation. Galatians three twenty eight and 29 says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there's there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's no racial, no economic or gender distinctions. We are all inheritors. In the Old Testament world, by the way, and the idea of, of being one in Christ Jesus, or, 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 or uh, um, being uh, uh, heir, inheritors, were heirs according to the promises. And then in the Old Testament world, Gentiles were not allowed to inherit the land. Women were not allowed to inherit the land, and slaves were not allowed to inherit the land. Paul says, "There's no more Gentiles. No more. We don't make that distinction between Jews and Gentiles. We don't make the distinction between male and female. We don't make the distinction between rich and poor, free and slave." We are all inheritors in Christ Jesus. Now here's where it gets difficult. The point is, in Genesis, there was equality between Adam and Eve and between male and female. In the new creation, in Revelation 21 and 22, there's equality between male and female. And that's where the biblical story is going. The point is, is that we're somewhere in the middle. And we don't know if we're in the middle or near the end and when Christ is coming back. We have no idea. But we're somewhere in the middle. We're, we're in between Eden and the new creation, we're, or the new Jerusalem. And in that middle, both the Genesis 3 world and the Revelation 21 and 22 world exists. Let me explain. The Genesis 3 world is a world of death, decay, suffering, strife, sin, lusts, temptations, wars. That's the world that continues to exist. The world that happened after God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden in Genesis 3, that world still continues. But the new creation has already started. Now there will come a time where the world that we now exist of Genesis 3 world, that world will cease. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old world is gone. Behold, all things have become new. That world will we'll, we'll, we'll cease to exist. But in the present, beginning with Jesus, they both exist simultaneously. And we, those who acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those who have been filled with the Spirit of God, we exist in this tension of both worlds. Tempted by the world and, and its lust and its challenges. Suffering pain and, and death and, and, and mourning. And at the same time, experiencing the presence of God within us. Right? The new creation is one where God's presence dwells with his people. And the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. Therefore, we exist in, the, in, in this tension between the, between the two. And the point would be this. That if the new creation has already begun in Jesus... And if the new creation is taking us on a trajectory where there won't be any distinction between male and female in terms of our roles and responsibilities and privileges and equality, then shouldn't we already begin to practice that now? And I would say yes. After all, it seems to be the case in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams even on my servants, both men and women. I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. We see in the book of Acts that the beginning of the church, the beginning of God's kingdom began with God's pouring out a spirit on all people. Young, old, male, female. The, the new creation started. And if, if you look in the New Testament, and I'm, you're not going to have time to write all these down, but if you want the list, take a picture of the screen. But in the New Testament, we see Jesus had female disciples, Mary. Women were prominent in the resurrection accounts. The Spirit was poured out on both men and women, Acts 2. Philip had four daughters who prophesied, Acts 21, verse 9. Priscilla was an evangelist and maybe one of the leading evangelists in the the church, Acts chapter 18. Women were praying and prophesying in church, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. And Phoebe was a deaconess, Romans 16, verse 1. Now, some are going to respond and say, well, but I know, Rob, that's all fine. And Danny, that's great. And you can see women being given more prominent roles in Christianity than maybe they had in their culture. But the New Testament still says, right? And they're going to go to one or two or more of these key verses that that seem to put women in their roles down. That that seem to say women, women can't have these prominent roles in the church. One of the passages uh, and let, let, let me actually point, make this point before we look at the verse. Um, the point is this, is that if, if the New Testament writers were too progressive, they would harm their witness. And here's what I mean by that statement. And that's this. Paul and the early Christians believed in the prominent role of women, equal, e, I believe, equal with men. But they had a problem. Rome, Roman and Jewish cultures... Roman and Jewish cultures were presenting a problem so that if Paul were put women too for, in too much of a prominent role, they would lose their witness in both the Roman world and in the Jewish world. Uh, by the way, I've been in churches where I've seen women up in the pulpit before and I've had people come to me later on and say, I'm no longer going to attend that church. They, they, they leave. All right. now those are people that are Christians and that, that's fine. But imagine if there were Romans who thought women shouldn't be preaching or teaching to me. Or Jews who think women shouldn't be preaching. And, and they're not going to receive the gospel because of it. When you read the New Testament, this is what's happening. Paul, Peter, and the early writers were putting restrictions on women because the culture wasn't permitting it. Let me give you an example. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And this is going to sound like Paul is really putting women, or Peter's is really putting women down. And he's not. It's actually the opposite. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Here we go. I've actually seen this verse used in the secular context to say the Bible and even the New Testament puts women down. And actually the opposite is happening here. When understood in light of the context. You see, in Rome... A family's religion. Every family had their religion, and it was the religion of the empire. In fact, the empire was considered a family, and then the local family, the small family itself, was simply an extension of the larger Roman family. The family's religion was mediated through the male, through the husband, through the father, who was known as the pater familias, the head of the household, the the father of the family. And he himself had the role of the chief priest in that household. In fact, the emperor was the Pater paterfamilias, the chief priest or the head of the household of the empire. So everything within the Roman Empire was looked at as, as a household. Now, upon marriage, a woman was to renounce her family's religion and adopt her husband's religion. By law, she was obligated to practice the religion of her husband. And the Roman world now, and the religion of her husband, right, was the pagan religion of the Roman Empire. And the pagan religion of the Roman Empire, the gods, were in charge of everything. And if everything was going well, then the gods are happy. But if everything's not going well, then the gods were no longer happy. And if the gods were not happy, it's because somebody's not worshipping them. Who is it? And of course, most often, the blame became the Christians and the Jews over the next several centuries, right? Christians were persecuted because they would not worship the Roman gods. You see, the Romans said, you can practice any religion you want, but you have to worship our gods first. The wife could be Christian if she wanted, but she has to ab- abide by her husband's religion first. And what's happening in this context? Peter's then telling her, look, here's a reality, and that is this. You can be a Christian... But as soon as you become a Christian, understand what that's done. You brought shame to your husband and his household. You just shamed because you just said, I'm not going to submit to your religion. I'm going to submit to my own. And I'm going to bring sh- and she's bringing shit. Now, now the woman has become a Christian and what is her concern? I want my husband to know Jesus too, right? I mean, think about this. I want my husband to, to, to know Jesus and so she wants to witness to him and share the faith with him and here's the problem and that's this. There's no way he's going to listen to you. You've already brought shame upon him if he now adopts your religion. You're bringing further and, and the woman is teaching the husband not going to be permissible in a Roman world. So what is Peter saying to her? He's saying, listen, you've already adopted a religion different from your husband's. Right, here, here we go. Peter's teaching is problematic for two reasons. One, Christian wives have adopted a God different from her husband's. This would be re- viewed as rebellion against the husband and the empire and lead to his public dishonor. Okay? Now, another problem, which I didn't mention, uh, by the way, as well, is a woman was not allowed to have friends of her own. She could only have friends and relations of her husband's. But when that woman goes to church, she's making friends with someone other than her husband's friends. Second problem, her attendance at Christian worship would suggest friends that are not her husband's. So what's happening? Peter is now telling women how to live in this situation. He's not telling them, guess what, you know what, you've got to go back to your husband's religion. He's giving them authority, ability to say, you can choose for yourself. Very liberating, radically countercultural. You can choose your own religion just as your husband can choose his own religion. But here's the thing don't think you're going to convert them by your words, it's just not going to work. Instead, just let your good behavior. Let your godliness in Christ. Let him see what Jesus has done for you and maybe then he'll be won over by your good behavior in Christ. Instead of putting women down, giving them a role of subordinates, Paul, Peter, and the early Christians are giving women roles of prominence. Another passage that I won't take the time to go into this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul says a woman can't teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. All right? Now this is in a Jewish context. In a Jewish context, Paul and the early Christians had already told women they can pray and prophesy in church. They, they can do all these things which are incredibly liberating, but the Jews were like, oh, I don't know about this. So Paul puts restrictions on women praying and, or teaching and having authority over a man, which seems to mean that she cannot be a pastor. Teaching and having authority over a man is a two job descriptions of a pastor, or a leader in the church. So people will commonly argue 1 Timothy 2, and by the way, this is a key verse for me in my my early years when when I was strongly convicted that women could not have roles of leadership in the church. 1 Timothy 2 says they can't. But Paul goes on to say, because Adam was made first and Eve sinned first. Or she was deceived first. And and if you look carefully at Paul's argument 1 Timothy 2, that she cannot have authority over a man, she must be silent because she was deceived first. And you start thinking, well, well, what would make a person more easily deceived? Because that's that's the bottom line. She she was deceived, and the the, the pastor has got to be careful because the devil's primary weapon is deception. So you begin looking, well, well, what are factors that lead a person to being more easily deceived? And guess what? Being a woman is not one of them. Modern sociological uh, uh, sociological studies have told us that there's about seven factors that lead to a person being more easily deceived. Age is one of them. Think about it. You know, children are more easily deceived than an adult. Usually alongside that, education is one of them, right? Um, uh, uh, Intelligence is is, is another. uh, There's a number of factors that lead a person to be more easily deceived, but being a female is not one of them. The key one that would have made sense for Paul in Paul's day is education. In the Roman world and Jewish world, women were not given the same privilege or opportunities as education as men. So what happens if the world changes? What happens if women have the same ability as education as men? The answer then becomes, women are not going to be more easily deceived, and therefore Paul's provision, she sinned first by being more deceived, may not actually apply then. So here's the question, that's this. Was Paul and the early church limiting the roles of women because in their culture, it would have harmed the effectiveness and the advance of the gospel? Okay, now let me stop before I go further and say this. Why is this important? And the reason why I think it's important is this. (laughs) The reason why I think it's important is this. Half the population is affected by this issue. This is just not some generic issue. Half the population is affected by the issue of women and women in the church. According to the World Health Organization, 35% of women worldwide have experienced uh, um, violence or sexual violence from either their intimate partner or their non-partner. Two-thirds of the world's 880 million illiterates in the world today are women. One-third of the world's girls are married before they turn 18, and one out of nine girls are married before they turn 15 all of which deprives them of the lack of opportunity for education, lack of opportunity for advancement in the world. One in three women have been the a victim of sexual violence. One in six are, uh, one in six American women have been the victim of an attempted or completed rape. Unequal pay is a common illustration that we, that, that we typically use. But it's not just unequal pay and lower salaries for women, but uh, the fact of lower opportunities for experience and education. Women are still significantly suppressed even in our culture. Gender discrimination goes beyond pay, lack of respect. They feel less important. They're passed over for promotions or important assignments. They're turned down for jobs. Women are harassed more often than men. Seventy percent of women believe that online harassment is a major problem and is often overlooked or dismissed. Slavery, 80,000 slaves were trafficked to the New World during the era of slavery. 800,000 women are trafficked in sex slavery today. 80,000 slaves in the African American slave trade, but 800,000 women are trafficked in sex slavery today. Infanticide, there are more women in the Western and European world, and and they live uh, longer lives, but globally, uh, demographics have estimated that there are between 60 and 100 million missing women from society. In many countries, girls are aborted more frequently. They're, uh, they're simply denied the right to life. This is true in the Roman world as well. This is not what God attend- intended. American women were polled earlier this year, and they were asked, what do they want? What, what would they want most in our society? American women? And they said three things. Number one, the right to personal safety. The right to economic security. And thirdly, the right to meaningful participation. These are good things. Things that we as Christians should help champion the causes for. And someone would say, well, oh, but Rob, there are many other causes in the world that we should be working towards. And, and starvation and hunger and all the, other, all the other injustices. And the answer is, guess what? Then let's work for those too. But that doesn't mean that we should not be working and advocating for the rights of women. To say that women are not as good leaders of men is not only a sexist comment, it simply denies history. Margaret Thatcher, Andrea Merkel, the CEO of General Motors today is Mary Barra. Ginny Romney is the president and CEO of IBM. Indra Nui is the chairman and and CEO of PepsiCo. Marilyn Hewson is the chairman, president, and CEO of Lockheed Martin. Historically, we have women like Cleopatra, Queen Elizabeth, Andira Gondry, Rosa Parks, and other. Women are prominent and dynamic leaders. And they were in the early church. They were in the book of Acts. They were in the life and ministry of Paul. When women are not given their prominent roles, I think I skipped some slides here, sorry. That's fine. I'll go, I'll go, n- point number two is going to be this, and that is, what are we doing to advocate for the role of women? Our first question this morning is, are we Mary or Martha? How much are we like Mary? Our second role, question is, what are we doing to advocate for the role of women? When women are not given their proper role in the new creation alongside men, the kingdom of God suffers. One la- one, I'll say one last thought, but it might not be. According to the New Testament, we're all members of the Kingdom of God. According to the New Testament, we're all given gifts. Each one of us, male, female, white, black, young, old, rich, poor, we're all given gifts to further and advance the Kingdom of God. And when we hinder women from roles of significance and importance in the church, we're taking one half of the Kingdom of God and dismissing it. Bill Gates was speaking in Saudi Arabia to a room that was partitioned. Two-thirds of the room was for men. One-third of the room was for women. Someone then came up to him in Saudi Arabia and said, one of the questions during the uh, the Q&A time said, that Saudi Arabia wanted to be one of the top ten countries in the world in industry. And they asked Bill Gates, so what do we need to do? And Bill Gates replied, if you're not utilizing half the talent and you have in your country, you're never going to be close to the top ten. If you're not utilizing half the talent you have in your country, you're never going to be close to the top ten. You see, I argued that the New Testament says we're on a trajectory from garden to garden and that the new creation's already begun. And if the new creation's already begun, in which there'll be equality between male and female, white and black, free and slave, rich and poor, it doesn't matter, we're all equal. And if the new creation's already begun, then we should begin practicing that now. But why didn't Paul and Peter seem to do that fully? And the answer is because the culture wouldn't permit them without being a hindrance to the gospel. And I've been arguing us th- through the book of through the Gospel of Luke that our primary task as Christians is the advancement of the gospel. We mentioned we memorized a few weeks ago, a month ago or so, 1 Peter two nine, you are a chosen race, a royal priest, and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. When Paul and Peter don't allow women to have ultimate prominent roles in the church, it's because it was going to hinder the advancement of the gospel. And Paul's answer is, if I have to suffer for the gospel, if you ladies have to suffer for the advancement of the gospel, then we're going to be willing to suffer for the advancement of the gospel. But we now live in a culture, folks. We now live in the United States of America in a culture in which... If we were the primary advocates of women's rights, of women's liberties, it would actually advance the gospel. The gospel would be, have, have stronger advocacies. More people would listen. Lord, we, have, we pray for those sirens that are outside and ask your mercy and your grace. Be with them wherever they may be going. Help those who are in need to be protected and guided for. We thank you for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But do we get it? if we promoted women and the rights and roles of women and advocated for them more strongly, it would actually advance the gospel. Now, again, for those of you who are listening here at Northminster, maybe I'm preaching to the choir because, like, Rob, what are you talking about? We've been doing this for years. Amen. But we still have to, by the way, recognize, and this is especially to us men, that there are hidden prejudices in our culture that we still live by. There are just simply times when you go to the auto store and there's a woman behind the register, you're like, oh, is she going to be able to answer my question about cars? They're just hidden prejudices that we have and hidden biases. So even though here at Northminster we affirm the role of women, have women as deacons and women as elders, and we've had women fill the the pulpit, we still have these hidden biases. The fact still remains that if a male and female have the same job, the female almost always gets paid less. And she almost always gets respected less. And so it's our job as a church to continue to push forward and advocate for half the population. Let's pray. Father, we first, I know I do, I repent because for many years and many, many years I didn't allow women to have a voice that they needed to have in my own personal life and even in the life of the church. And even still we have these hidden prejudices that when I hear a a woman on a sports cast I'm taken aback because it just seems wrong to me. But it's not. And so I pray, Father, for all the women that are in this church or they're listening online that have struggled to get ahead in the church. Their voices have not been heard at various times in Bible studies or leading a class or a teaching. They've been disregarded, disrespected. And Lord, I pray that you'll lift them up and encourage them because in Christ Jesus there's neither male nor female, for we're all one. And I pray that you'll help us to overcome these biases and prejudices, and that you'll help us to advocate. In a culture that would actually hear the gospel more effectively and more efficiently if we spoke up. So help us, Lord, to speak up. And we may not agree with everything that women's marches are about. But we do agree that their rights have been suppressed. And we agree that that's wrong. And we thank you, Lord, that in your kingdom, you made us male and female. And together, male and female, we reflect the image of God. And then, Lord, we ask that you'll help us. Help us to be Mary and not Martha. Help us to not be so busy that we don't have time to sit at the feet of Jesus. Help us to not be so concerned with what my house looks like because company's coming over that I forget to sit at the feet of Jesus. Help me not to be so worried about getting ready in the morning and making sure I look beautiful that I forget to take the time to sit at the feet of Jesus. Help, Help us, Lord, not to be so concerned with what others think of us in our humanity that we forget to sit at the feet of Jesus. And may we be more concerned that they see Jesus than that they see me. Strengthen us, Lord. Equip us. We thank you for the challenges of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we pray, Lord, that you'll be continuously be our Lord and our God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.